this part of Revelation, as your outline says, from chapter 10, verse 1 through 11, verse 14, is a parenthetical. Okay, and the theme of this parenthetical is testimony. God's testimony during days of darkness, wrath, judgment, and trouble. God maintains a testimony even in the worst of circumstances. There was a testimony of God in that earthquake. The testimony was in that many believers were spared in ways that the lost were not. I mean, it's amazing to me. All the people I know and have a relationship with escaped unharmed. And nobody in terms of their home in the city had any real damage. In Bishnu's house, not even a single glass fell off the shelves. And amazingly, my motorcycle was parked outside and it didn't even get knocked over. And that thing has a terrible kickstand and I'm always worried it's going to get knocked over. But even the quake didn't knock it over. That's a testimony immense judgment. And that's the way God does things. We've been talking about the testimony of the mighty angel, the first seven verses. This mighty angel, I believe, is the Lord Jesus Christ appearing on behalf of Israel who will suffer during this time period, the time of Jacob's trouble, suffering that will bring them to a point of awakening, much like what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. We've talked about the identity of the angel. We talked about the little book, the seven thunders, whatever they spoke. John was told to write not and seal up. It obviously had something to do with Christ's authority to reclaim the earth. And the mystery of God. You know, we talked last week about how this angel... The seven thunders, what they said is not revealed, but what the angel responded or what Christ in this context responded was revealed. And he said, swearing by heaven and earth with his hands lifted toward heaven uh, as if in a pledge that there would be time no longer, no more delay in bringing about God's uh, consummation of all things. And in the days of the voice of the seventh trumpet, which is about to sound. These are the seven vials we'll read about later. The mystery of God would be finished just as He is declared. What God says will come to pass. That's not just the testimony of the Word of God. It's the testimony of the mouth of Christ in this uh, vision that John has. And so we talked last week about the mystery. What a mystery is in the Bible. It's a secret known to those on the inside but hidden from those without. It's information veiled in the Old Testament. It's there, but it's declared and explained by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It's truth that can't be comprehended but by special revelation of God. Through the Word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we as believers are initiates and stewards of these ministry, mysteries. The mystery of God encapsulates lots of things. We sum, summarize some of those in Scripture. The mystery of the Gospel, of Christ, of faith mystery of the kingdom of heaven, the mystery of Israel's blindness, the mystery of the rapture, the mystery of the church as Jew and Gentile, a special program, the body of Christ and God's plan, the mystery of the church as the bride of Christ, the mystery of the indwelling Christ, the mystery of godliness, how it's tied to the personal work of Jesus Christ and not works, the mystery of Babylon, false religion, the mystery of God, which sums up all of this. Why would God... A loving God allow this and take so long for this and allow evil here and Satan here and man here. And we ended last week with the best answer to this question is in Romans. Who are we, the things formed, to say to the one who made us, why have you done this? Who are we to even ask that question? He's God. 
And then our, the best response is like that of Job. When he was confronted with things too wonderful to understand, he said, I repent in sackcloth and acid, and I put my hand over our mouth. That's what we should do when we consider the wonders of the mysteries of God. God is in control. He will bring it to pass. And by faith, we believe that and declare it. Okay, before we move on, I want to take a moment and look back on this image of Christ we see in Revelation 10. He's just declared that the mystery of God will be finished in the days of the seventh angel. What will happen will happen quickly. And I'm reminded of another mystery per se. It's a mystery of the atonement in the Word of God. And there's lots of Christians that argue over Christ's atonement. Is that atonement unlimited? Or is it limited? Is it for the whole world? Or was it only for the believers? Because you see, those that reject Christ don't benefit from it. So maybe Christ's atonement is limited. Maybe it's only for believers and not for the whole world. And then you have scriptures that seem to indicate one or the other and believers argue over this and some get hung up on a theology and they want to define themselves according to a theologian or according to five points of Calvinism and not define themselves according to the Word of God. And I think this vision of Christ forces us to pause in the context of the mystery of God and consider the mystery of atonement for a moment. Turn to 1 John 2.2. 2. 1 John 2.2 2. I'll read verse 1 while you're turning. My little children, this is written to believers, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin that is a believer, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's not religion, my friends. And He is the propitiation. That means the payment, the satisfaction there are those that deny the propitiatory aspect of Christ's atonement. If they do, they deny the Scriptures. He is the propitiation. That means He satisfied the wrath of God. Not the wrath of the devil, the wrath of God. He is the propitiation for our sins, talking to believers, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. How can you read that Scripture and say that Christ's atonement is limited? That doesn't mean all believers will be saved. But we have to ask ourselves, who is the chief beneficiary of the atonement? If it's man, then of course it's limited in its effect to those that believe. But if the chief beneficiary of Christ's work on the cross is Christ Himself, then it's unlimited. And it benefits Him, whether it's the salvation of the saved or the damnation of the lost. And when I think about this vision in Revelation 10, I realize it's not John that's the chief beneficiary. It's not the world. It's not Israel. It's Christ. The Lamb that was slain. The chief beneficiary of Revelation 4 and 5. Slain from the foundation of the world. He alone is worthy to take the book and open it. He alone is worthy to hold it. It's a little book in Revelation 10 because most of the seals have been opened. And He alone is worthy to give it to John. The chief beneficiary, the atonement becomes perfectly understandable. It's no longer a mystery when you realize that Christ is the chief beneficiary of His work, not man. 
The salvation of man is a byproduct of the glory of God, but it is not the central theme of all things. Praise God that He is glorified by the salvation of men. We benefit from that. But modern day churchianity has erred by claiming that man's redemption is the chief end of all things. And when you go down that road, other things begin to happen. The gospel begins to suffer. It becomes about humanitarian aid and not the gospel. Israel is seen as being replaced by the church. The scriptures are no longer taken literally, but allegorically. And then you have the ecumenical mess we see today that would justify all sorts of sins in favor of a love of God not defined biblically. We must understand that the chief center of all things is the glory of God. And the redemption of man is a byproduct of the glory of God. God chose to save men in the way He did to give Himself glory. We can either accept it and glorify God through our salvation, a free gift by grace through faith unto all that will believe Jew and Gentile, or we can reject it and God will be glorified in our judgment and damnation, showing that He is righteous. Turn for a moment to Matthew 28, 18. I think at the heart of this, we, we always read the Great Commission, 19 and 20, go into all the world and preach the Gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Lord, I'm with you. Teaching them to deserve all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age, or the end of the world. But we don't ever read verse 18. And what Jesus says here in verse 18 can clear up our misunderstandings about the uh, mystery of the atonement. Jesus came and spake unto them, All power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. He has all power and authority given to Him. The authority to save and the authority to judge. And it's by the atonement, the death, burial, and resurrection that He has that authority. That authority is His. He is the kinsman redeemer. He's the rightful owner of the earth. He's the rightful one to come and take it back. It's His authority purchased through the atonement that is the center of the atonement. It's by virtue of the atonement that He has the authority to save and to judge. And so when Jesus says in John 12, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to Myself, He's not saying I will save all men like the universalists teach. He's saying I will draw all men to Myself in terms of His authority over all men. He will draw all men to Himself to bow the knee at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Not unto salvation. Many will do it willingly. Out of gratitude for what Christ has done, many will do it reluctantly, but be forced to do so in a spirit of rebellion. But Christ nonetheless will draw all men to Himself. Some for salvation, some for judgment. And it's by the atonement that He has the authority to do so. So obviously, in terms of benefit to man, the atonement is limited to those who repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. But in terms of the benefit to Christ, there is no mystery. It's unlimited. It's for the entire world. Because Christ is the chief beneficiary. By salvation 
and by judgment He is glorified. And He has the right to mete out judgment because of what He did on the cross and what He did in fulfilling prophecy through His active obedience which made Him the perfect sacrifice and through His resurrection which showed that God accepted that sacrifice. Does that make sense? So there's no need to get into these endless, vain, profane babblings about semantics. Yes, obviously the benefits of the atonement for man are limited to those who repent and believe. But in terms of Christ, it's not limited. And we need to see Christ as the center of our doctrine, not man. Okay? Let it be Christ. And so a lot of times these mysteries kind of become more clear if we put Jesus at the center. And that's where He's supposed to be. Okay? And He's at the center not only of that doctrine, but of, of the Scriptures. Okay, that scarlet thread woven throughout. Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, veiled in the Old Testament, declared in the New. Okay? Saints looking forward to Him before His coming, as Simeon and Anna in Jerusalem in the days of Christ's birth. Saints now looking backward at what He's done. Both perspectives require faith in something they cannot see. And there is Jesus at the center. So that's just kind of a concluding word there on the testimony of the mighty angel. Let's move on because that's not the only testimony in these passages. We also have the testimony of John the Apostle. Okay, And that begins at verse 8 and it actually goes through the first two verses of chapter 11. So this is one of those places in the Bible where you have to just look at a chapter division as a tool. Okay, It's just that, a chapter division. But be careful using divisions put in there by man to help us study as final authority because really John's testimony goes into the first two verses of chapter 11 and you can't divide chapter 10 and 11. Now these tools were given to us by saints and men of old who wanted us to have a an easier time studying the Scriptures. And praise God for the chapter divisions. Praise God also for the verse divisions. Okay, I believe, and I may be wrong about this, that the verse divisions as we have them today were first introduced by Robert Stephanus, who was a, uh, a preacher from the Reformation used of God to help preserve the Greek New Testament. If I remember correctly, he was fleeing persecution on horseback when a lot of these verse divisions were, were introduced and then his notes and things were compared and these were added to the English Bible tradition and we see them today. And I praise God for that. These men that introduced them never claimed them to be inspired. Okay? But they are helpful tools, but we need to see them as just that. And here, there's not really a division uh, between these two chapters except for a way for us to navigate through the Scriptures. Okay? We just need to remember that. The testimony of John. Let's look at verse 8. So John has heard a voice from heaven, God. He's already been given one command. Seal up and write not. Where the seven thunders are concerned. Then the angel, who we've talked about his identity, speaks and swears. Makes a promise, an oath. And then it says in verse 8, And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take... The little book. Okay, so he's been told from heaven, seal up and write not. Now he's told a second command from heaven, go and take. Go and take the little book. And he said unto me, take it, eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. 
And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying... So the angel in chapter 10 is standing with his feet on the land and the sea. But somewhere between there and here, he's chosen to sit down. Now I'm going to talk about that here in a minute. And what does the angel now say to John? This is the third commandment given to John. So it all goes together. Rise and measure. Voice from heaven, seal up, write not. Go and take. And now the angel, who I believe is Jesus Christ, rise and measure. So John is told to get up. Now obviously John is sitting down. Whatever he's heard in the few verses previous has caused him to sit down. And the angel's sitting down. So the angel stands up and then he tells John, get up, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein, but the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So that's the testimony of John. I want to look at his obedience in verses 8 through 10, his commission in verse 11, and then his measurements in the first two verses of chapter 11. So I don't know if we'll get through that today. We'll try our best. But there's some very interesting things here that are worth considering. Things that aren't necessarily seen when we casually uh, peruse the Scriptures. First of all, you need to realize that John here is not a casual observer. He is an actor that actually takes part in what God is calling him to do. Now, when the church is raptured out, as portrayed in the first verse of chapter 4, the church who is active now becomes an observer on the sidelines. But what John is doing here is not tied to his role after the rapture. It's tied to his role and the role of the church that would be from the many years between when this vision was given and when Christ comes back. You can look at what he's told to do there at the end of chapter 10. He would, must prophesy again before many peoples and tongues and nations before this comes to pass. So John is being commissioned as an actor, not just an observer, one to do things. And he's taking part. God doesn't need us to be a part of what He does, but He gives us the opportunity to be involved. And we should be. That's an amazing thing. And He often gives that opportunity to those who are small and of insignificance in the eyes of the world. He uses babes instead of mighty men. That's been His testimony throughout all of history. And we should rejoice. Even the, 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 the most insignificant, unknown, least of all believers in the church, in any local church from God's perspective, is of more importance than the mightiest king in the secular realm. The Bible says when we have a matter in the church that can't be resolved, don't take it to the courts. Don't take it to the courts. Let those that are least esteemed among you judge it. Because as believers, we'll judge angels. Why is it we try to go outside our churches to resolve these things? 
Why is it we won't go to the least esteemed among us? The ones that never really do offer an opinion. The quiet ones. The ones that never draw attention to themselves. Why don't we go to them for help? That's what the Bible says to do. But John is an actor, not just an observer. And he's given a command, and we see his obedience. Let's look at it. Verses 8 through 10. I won't read it again. I'll read it a little bit at a time. The voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. So at this moment, this angel is standing still. Okay? Because he's standing on the sea and the earth. John's told to go and take. Look at the first phrase of verse 9. What does it say? And I went unto the angel, excuse me, and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said, take it and eat it up. So John, what did he do? He immediately went and did what he was told to do. I think it's worth pausing to consider that. John was given a command earlier in the chapter, seal up and write not. He immediately obeyed. He was given a, he was given a command, told not to do something. He didn't do it. Here he's given a commission He's told to do something and he immediately does it. Something that would be difficult to do. Here you have this mighty angel in power and authority and John is told to go up to him and say, give me that. How many of us would do that? But God said to do it and it says that he immediately obeyed and he did it. Immediate obedience. No waffling. No wavering. No rationalizing, no questioning like Moses or Gideon or Zacharias. The Lord told John to do something and he did it. What did Moses do? He waffled. Oh, come on, Lord. I'm not an eloquent speaker. I can't go speak to Pharaoh. And then God says, fine, I'll send your brother Aaron with you. He will speak for you. And then when you read the rest of the narrative, what you see is that Moses actually did most of the speaking anyway. Okay? What about Gideon? Gideon needed a sign. Okay? He needed, what did he need to do? Put out, what did he put out several times? A fleece. Just to make sure. Are you sure, God, you want me to do this? Waffling, wavering. Zacharias. He questioned when the angel appeared to him. And what happened? He went dumb until John was born. But, John the Baptist. But not here. John the Apostle immediately does what his Lord tells him to do. Wow! You see, the Bible for us as the church is God telling us things not to do and God telling us things to do. Even the Old Testament. Um, let's, let's look up some Scriptures here. Let's get you guys involved for a moment. Bob, would you look up Romans 15.4? Jim, 1 Corinthians 10.11? And Tony, John 6, verse 29. Okay? Here in this context, John is given a command, something not to do, a command of omission. He's also given this second command here, a command of commission, and he's obedient. The Bible is full of such commands for us as followers of Christ. Commands of omission, commands of commission. Even the Old Testament. And they're given to us for a reason. And our response ought to be like that of John. Romans 15.4 
Paul is talking about the Old Testament. It was written before for our learning that we through patience and comfort, that means studying the Scriptures, might have hope. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. It's not been replaced by the New Testament. It doesn't not have any value for us. That's why it's there. To look at those examples, to not follow the examples, some of them, and to follow others, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now, now these things happen to them for example. And they are written for admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Okay, all these things, the Old Testament. Okay, it, was, it happened to them as examples or in samples. Okay, in samples, an older English word that has a slightly different meaning. I'm not going to get into that today. It's very appropriate. But it, it means a plurality of examples. What was written in the Old Testament, these were examples. Men that were used by God and things that happened in history and where Israel was concerned that are in samples. They're examples to us of many different things. And they were written for our admonition. That means our um, teaching. Okay? Our instruction. Exactly what Paul says there in in uh, uh, Timothy about all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Did I get them all? That's what admonition is. That's another purpose of the Old Testament. Upon us, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So even the Old Testament is given to us, telling us what to do and what not to do. Okay? If you want to sum up what it means to do the works of God, if you want to sum up everything written in this book, Jesus was asked one day, what must we do by a self-righteous man? What must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus summed up the admonition of the whole Bible in one simple statement. John 6, 29. That sums it up. Just like God told John, go and take the book. God has told us, this is the work of God. Not feeding the hungry and giving clothes to the naked and helping the earthquake victims. All those, these things are means whereby God is glorified and the Gospel goes out if we remember the primary truth. And that's right here. This is the work of God that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. That is salvation. Not doing good works. True salvation, believing on Him whom God hath sent, results in works that justify us before men and bring glory to God, demonstrating our faith. But the central thing we are commanded of God to do is believe on Him whom God hath sent. Will our obedience be simple, swift, and without waffling like that of John? You don't get to God. None of your works please God but by Him whom God hath sent. So any relief in Nepal, any helping earthquake victims, if it's not by and through Jesus Christ and the Gospel, it's worthless. You can, you can give money all day long, but you will die in your sins if you die without Christ. Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is central to the works of God. Will our belief and our understanding concerning this matter be simple, swift, and sure in terms of our obedience, just like that of John? And that's a question worth asking in these days when the church is turning to the spirit of the age and denying this simple truth. Denying it so much so that there are people claiming to love Jesus while affirming homosexuality is okay. Some of them claiming that David and Jonathan were homosexuals or Jesus and His disciples were homosexuals. And they say they love Jesus. Okay? That their Jesus has a mask on. His name is Jesus. And Jesus said many false Christs will come. So we know there'll be false Christs. And one day He's going to peel that mask off and it'll be too late. But were our obedience to the truth, truth that runs contrary to what the world says, truth that is going to run contrary to what the United States Supreme Court rules in a couple of weeks, I can promise you that. Maybe I'll eat my words like I did about the election in Israel, but I don't think so. I think the writing's on the wall. Will our obedience and our holding fast to truth revealed in the Scriptures be like that of John here? Immediate obedience. Okay? I don't care how popular Fifty Shades of Grey is. I don't care how popular gay marriage is. The Bible is very clear that we're to think on pure things. And that we're not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Especially in these last days. Will we be like John? Or will we be like Moses and Gideon and Zacharias and Waffle? That's a question worth answering. You know, there are things relevant to the times that we as believers are told not to do in the New Testament and things we're told to be about doing in the Old Testament. I mean, I mean in the New Testament as well. And a lot of these things don't get preached. And there's a whole lot, list of things here that are obvious. We say in Spanish, que obvio. It's obvious. But there are things that we should highlight today because they're not popular with the times. So let's look up a few passages here. What are some things that we are told not to do just as followers of Christ in the New Testament, just like John was told, write not in chapter 10? Paul, if you'll look up 2 Thessalonians 4.3. Bob, I'm going to go back to you. These are, these are a few verses here. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 7, as well as verses 14 and 15 in that chapter. And then, uh, Jim, I'm going to ask you to read 2 John verses 9 through 11. There's only one chapter in that book, so verses 9 through 11. Okay. John was told, write not! Earlier in the chapter, and he did what he was told. Didn't do what he was told not to do. What about us? What is God telling us? What is His will for us? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 Did I say first or second? I meant to say first. It's first. I'm sorry. I meant first. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. That is the will of God, that we abstain from fornication. What is fornication? It's sexual sin. It's not just adultery. The word for adultery is not used there. It's bigger than that. It's sex outside of marriage. It's lust in our hearts. Lust in our minds. It's 
homosexuality. It's homosexual sex. It's child molestation. Okay? It's lewdness. And all of these things, bestiality, that fall under sexual sin. And God says we are to abstain from it. It is His will. So don't tell me you're a Christian and God's made you a homosexual. You're not a homosexual because God made you that way. You desire those things because your heart is rebellious toward God. And those things result when we turn our ear away from God. They result in a hard heart. Just like Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Okay? And God gave him over. Are you going to be that way? God's will is specific here. Abstain from fornication. And don't tell me, well, you're a homosexual, but because you love God, you're going to be celibate. Celibacy is not something that's commanded by God in the Scriptures. In fact, it's said in the epistles, I believe in one of Paul's epistles, that the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the last days men will deny the faith, teaching or forbidding to marry and teaching to abstain from meats. So this idea of forbidding a man and a wife to marry is a doctrine of devils. You know, the Catholic doctrine of celibacy is not from God. Jesus said there are some that are born eunuchs. There are some who decide, like Paul, to stay out of a marriage relationship so they can serve the Lord. Okay? But marriage is honorable in all things, and the bed is not defiled. And it's between a man and a woman. It's not a man and a man. That's foolishness. To say that that's in the Scriptures is as stupid as saying that the Jews used marijuana in their anointing oil in the temple. It's amazing that people come up with these interpretations. It's what Peter calls resting the Scriptures to your own destruction. It's God's will that we abstain from fornication. It's His will. And that means to abstain from homosexuality. If you have homosexual thoughts, you're no different than one that has thoughts of stealing, lying, and hatred. And what's someone to do in those situations? They're to put away those thoughts and let themselves be captive to the Spirit of God. You're not special. You're no different than any other sinner who's thought every type of wicked thing in their mind. Put it away. Go to the Word of God. Quit making excuses for it. See, the homosexual wants you to think he's different than any other sinner. And those that know the Bible realize that homosexuality is abominable, just like lying and stealing and adultery. And you are no different. You've sinned and come short of the glory of God, and you need Jesus to cleanse you of your sins. Doesn't matter what your sin is. So you're not special. You're like every other wicked sinner in need of a Savior. Okay? And it's God's will that we abstain from fornication. Okay? It'd be wrong for us to speak against certain sins and not speak against others, church. It's wrong to steal God's money. It's wrong to misuse God's money. It's wrong to gossip about one another. It's wrong. Adultery is just as wrong as homosexual sex. So, let's speak strongly against the sins of the day. But let's also realize our responsibility to speak strongly against the other sins that aren't so comfortable because they might involve family members. Okay? So we need to be consistent. That doesn't mean backing away from truth, but consistent in our preaching of it. We are commanded to abstain from fornication. There's no question there. Are we going to obey like John, or are we going to waffle in question? Okay, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 7, and then verses 14 and 15. This has to do with fellowship. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. 
and not after the traditions which you received of us. For yourself know how you ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. 14 yes. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. These are things that the church is told not to do with those that are disorderly among us with those who bring reproach on the name of Christ by living in sin and sowing discord. These are things that the church is very clearly told not to do. Will we obey like John when he was told, right not? Or are we going to waffle and make excuses like Gideon, Moses, and Zacharias? These are instructions for the church that have been largely ignored in our society today. My friends, if there are those among us that walk disorderly. To walk disorderly is to live in sin. It's to sow discord. It's to always try to draw attention to yourself in the church. If we have those among us, we are commanded to withdraw ourselves from them. What does that mean? It's very clear in Matthew 18. A brother has committed a trespass. You go to him. If he won't hear you, you take a witness. And oftentimes it stops there. But the Bible says, then if He won't hear you, bring it before the church. And if He will not hear the church, let Him be unto you as a lost man. Withdraw yourselves. They must be removed. This has a lot to say about church discipline. And that's not the subject of this message. But it is an issue that has touched our church. And I want to affirm that we must be those that don't do what God says not to do. And He says not to have fellowship with those that claim to be believers and walk disorderly. It's not talking about the lost. We expect the lost to live as lost people. And how do we treat them? We treat them as those that need a Savior. We share the Gospel with them. We pray for their salvation. We don't hate them. We're kind and we heap coals of fire upon them. But when it comes to someone who knows better and claims the name of Christ, we are to withdraw ourselves from them and let their judgment be from God. You see, within the church, we judge. Without the church, we let God do it as we declare the truth. If they walk disorderly among us and we judge it to be wrong and in need of repentance and they reject that, then we, we withdraw ourselves and allow God to handle them. And they are unto us, not enemies, but those for whom we pray. We pray that God will bring them to a place of repentance and reconciliation. We have to purge our churches. But unfortunately, purging churches means the offering goes down, the pastor's benefit package suffers. We ought not even be out there. I can't stand the idea of a church advertising to get people to attend. I cannot stand that. We are not called to advertise, we are called to meet in fellowship and let God bring in here whom He wants to. Our doors are open. To anyone that wants to come, but if you're going to be a part, to hear the gospel, but if you're going to be a part of us, you covenant with us to be a light and a testimony in this world. We don't need to advertise. If God's content with the size of this church as it is, so be it. If God wants us to grow, so be it. 
There's so much that's wrong with church growth and ministry today, and it's because we refuse to do what God tells us not, or we, we, we do what God tells us not to do here in these passages. Again, the question, will we be like John or are we going to be like others that waffle? 2 John, verses 9-11. through 11. Whosoever transgresses and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not died. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not his doctrine, receive him not as your house, neither bid him God speak. For he that abideth him God speak is the taker of evil deeds. Wow. False teachers. He that denies the doctrine of Christ, if any false teacher comes unto you and doesn't bring a biblical doctrine, we are not to let him in our house. Neither are we to bid him Godspeed. What does that mean? Have a nice day. God bless you. That's bidding him Godspeed. I've had to ask God to forgive me in those moments where my tongue has slipped and I've bidden Godspeed to someone that I should never have bidden Godspeed to. And you would think, oh, that's so terrible. We're supposed to be polite. We're supposed to love our brethren and all this. We're not talking about brethren here. We're talking about false teachers. God is very clear. When you bid a false teacher, even Godspeed, much less have him in your church or allow him in your church, you are partaker of his evil deeds. When it comes to false teachers, sometimes we have to be rude in what the world calls mean when it comes to false teachers. Not letting them in our home. Don't let the Jehovah's Witnesses in your home. Don't let the Mormons in there because you're going to sit down over dinner and you're going to witness to them. God says not to do it. It's very simple. Don't let churchianity in your home or this false spirit of the age that wants to teach you that there's alternative interpretations of Scripture when there's not, that wants to teach you things that take away Christ's glory and puts it upon themselves. Don't bid them Godspeed. Love them enough not to say God bless you. Love them enough not to shake their hand. I was approached by an old friend of mine who has turned away from biblical doctrine. He is a false teacher. He approached me in a cemetery. Okay, When I went to the funeral of a young man that used to be one of my karate students that was killed in Afghanistan. And it was very out of line. The timing of it was very suspect. He approached me in front of a lot of people and he stuck his hand out and tried to say hello to me and I refused to shake his hand. I said, I will not shake your hand. You're a false teacher. And oh my goodness. I know people that would think I'm the most mean, spirited, self-centered, angry person on the planet because of that. But God told me not to do it. And I'm going to answer to Him. God told John, write not. Seal it up. In our human reasoning, we would think, well, man, maybe He should have written it down so we could know. But God said, don't. Okay? That's the same foolish reasoning that says, well, you know, if you'll just haphazardly confess what the Muslims want you to confess, then you don't really have to mean it. Just do it and then you can go back to your home and you can keep being a witness for Christ. That's what the world says today. That's wicked. Okay? If you deny Christ, He will deny you. Period. Okay? God says not to do it. Let's be like John. Well, there are some things we are told to do. And this list could go on and on. But things that tend to get 
not so obvious that tend to get neglected. We're told not to do things, abstain from fornication, not have fellowship with those that are disorderly, not to welcome or even bid Godspeed to false teachers. These things are relevant to these last days. What are some things we are told to do? This is all going to be right from the book of Hebrews. So Tony, if you'll look up Hebrews 3.13, Paul, Hebrews 10.25, and Bob, Hebrews 13.22. Man, I'm not going to get through this, but these things are so relevant. Hebrews 3.13, whenever you get there. What are we told to do amongst ourselves as believers? Exhort. Does it say encourage? Encourage is part of exhortation, but it's not all of it. It's that speech seasoned with salt. Exhort one another daily. Why? So that none of us will be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. An element of exhortation is rebuke. And if we see our brother or sister living in sin or claiming things to be of God that are not, we are commanded by God to exhort them daily. That means to rebuke them and encourage them unto repentance. Why? Because we don't want to see them hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You say things long enough and you try to convince yourself long enough and nobody has the guts or loves you enough to rebuke you, you're going to come to the part where you're like Pharaoh and you're so hard you can't see the truth anymore. Do we love our brethren enough to try to keep that from happening and exhort them daily? The world wants to say, judge not that you be not judged. You can't judge. I love how wicked lost sinners who hate God, want to instruct me on how the Scripture is to be understood. They don't even have the Holy Spirit. They can't understand the spiritual things of God. But he that has the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, can understand all things the Bible says. Okay? Judge not is talking about hypocritical judgment. You, you judge another man and then you do the same things and you think he's condemned, but you think you're not. Paul talks about that in Romans 2, the judgment of the moral man. But we are told to exhort one another. If you claim the name of Christ, then it's my duty to rebuke you. It's your duty to rebuke me if you see me in sin because you love me. We are told to do it. John is told, go and take the book. He does it. We are told to exhort one another daily. Will we do it in the spirit of John? Immediate obedience. Hebrews 10.25 Not forsaking the assembling ourselves together as the matter of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. All the churches are corrupt. It's all messed up. All the pastors are out for their own good. There's no true churches anymore. They're all corrupt. I'm just going to worship God my own way. I'll go to the woods. That'll be my church. Is that obedience? Absolutely not. The Bible says here to Christians, we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves. And we know that the New Testament tells us that assembly is to be decent and in order. It's the disorderly stuff that's suspect. But we are to assemble ourselves even more so as we see the coming of Christ approach. So the next time a Christian tells you that every church is corrupt, he's, he's not telling you the truth. God always has a remnant. 
And the next time he tells you that he's going to worship God in his own way and the church has no value and he doesn't need to be with other Christians, then we need to exhort him and explain to him that he's in disobedience. God has commanded us to assemble together. We need that fellowship for encouragement, for exhortation, to protect ourselves in these days of universal deception. In days of universal deception, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And unfortunately, the only place you're going to hear the truth hardly anymore is in a sound Bible-believing church. So don't tell me it's, it has no value. We need that. And it's God's will that we assemble together as we have here today. No, going to church doesn't save you any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. It's an act of obedience. John was told, go and take the little book. We're told to assemble. Will we do it? Will we encourage others to do so? as we see the day of appro- day approaching. Hebrews 13:22. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Okay, believers are told to exhort one another, and believers are also told to suffer the word of exhortation. So not only are we to rebuke and hear our brethren, I mean, not only are we to rebuke and confront our brethren in sin, but if we are brethren, we are commanded to hear what they have to say and not to get mad and blow a gasket and walk out the door and never come back. That is wrong. We are to suffer the word of exhortation. That's what God tells us to do. When our, our, belie- our believing friends and brothers and sisters may not always be right in their rebuke, but we are told to suffer it and learn from it. And through that discussion that doesn't involve getting angry and blowing a gasket and walking out the door, we can come to a resolution and iron can sharpen iron. That's what we have elders for. That's what we have organization for to come to the truth. Okay? If you think you've been wronged, then you are not in obedience by getting up and walking out the door and never coming back. There is no biblical reason to leave a Bible-believing fellowship unless God is calling you to a specific place for the work of raising up another church or relocating you to do the work of the Great Commission. If it's, or unless there's false doctrine involved. If there's no false teaching, if there's no um, heresy being preached from the pulpit, and you're not moving to another location where you can't come and be a part, you have no biblical reason to leave the church. And if you leave because you get a little angry, then you're in sin. You're in sin. And you need to just go on if that's the way you're going to act. But we are commanded to suffer the word of exhortation. We're commanded to give it and we're commanded to suffer it. And I think all of us, myself included, need to remember that. I don't really like it when people correct me and I get a little bit defensive. But I am glad looking back in my life where believers did do that and I can be thankful for it today. So we need to all be willing to suffer that. That means to hear it. Okay? If we're not willing to hear it, then we need to be careful about giving it. And God tells us that we are to do both. Will we be like John or will we waffle and make excuses? Simple obedience. Or are we going to wiggle our way out of these verses? Are we going to argue with God? Are we going to exegete our way out of these verses? Be warned, there are those that do. Those that wiggle their way out of hard truth exegete their way out. They're spoken of in the Scriptures. 2 Peter is a very interesting passage in verse 3, and I'm going to end here today. Peter talks about Paul's epistles. 
He calls them Scripture. Verse 15, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul. Now remember, Peter wrote these words after Paul rebuked him to the face for something he did. And it's talked about in the book of Galatians. When the Jews came down, Peter, who was accustomed to fellowshipping and hanging out with the Gentiles, all of a sudden decided not to eat with the Gentiles anymore. He put on a show for the Jews. And even Barnabas was carried away. And Paul rebuked them to the face for trying to drive a wedge between Jewish and Gentile believers. But Peter suffered the word of exhortation and he obviously didn't harbor any hard thoughts for Paul because he writes these words about Paul years after that. Our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, and also in all his epistles, talking about all the epistles preserved in the New Testament of Paul, speaking of them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Yes, there are things hard to understand in the Scriptures. Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other Scriptures. So Peter is calling Paul's epistle Scripture here. Unto their own destruction. Those that are unlearned and unstable and want to rest or exegete their way out of God's clear truth are resting. That word resting, the image I get is taking a wash rag that is you've already wrung most of the water out of it, but you're trying to get those last little drops and you really wring it out. That's resting. That's what people are doing to these Scriptures to justify their sins. And the Bible says they do it to their own destruction. There is no private interpretation of the Scriptures. So if someone says there's an alternative interpretation that the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, is never held concerning the Scriptures, since the days the Bible, the New Testament was written, then they're off base, they're resting the Scriptures in their own instruction, there's no truth in it. God didn't hide His truth to which He called the New Testament church to be a steward thereof for 2,000 years, and then all of a sudden He reveals it today. That's what the Mormon church claims. They claim that God's truth and the priesthood was kept separate because it was corrupted all these years, and then all of a sudden, boom, bam, it was revealed to Joseph Smith. And this is the way to go, to follow this prophet. That's what Islam says. That's what, you know, all the false cults that follow a man and not God and the testimony of a plethora of men who serve God is found in the Bible. Okay? Resting the Scripture to their own destruction. When we waffle, it's a doorway to doing that very thing. And then finally, Titus 1 is worth reading. A few verses there at the end of chapter 1. Titus 1, 15 and 16. Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Not even their use of the Scriptures. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. That is the end of those who are bent on waffling before the truth of Scripture. Be careful. That's the end of those that rest the Scripture to their own destruction and convince themselves it's saying something that it's not saying in its immediate context or in the context of the entire Scriptures. That's the mark of a false teacher. And simple obedience 
The obedience modeled for us by John here in this chapter is a protection against those ends. So, simple obedience. I, I, I know that I kind of got off topic and I didn't really mean to go that far with it today, but I couldn't help but notice John was told to do something that really would have been kind of scary. And he immediately did it. And with that obedience, we're going to learn in verse 9, came a boldness. When he went to that mighty angel, he didn't say, can you please give me that book? God told me to ask you. He said, give me the little book. I think of this woman in Africa. The Africans can be very blunt. And it comes across really rude sometimes. But Ricky and I got off a bus in Botswana. And this lady saw a pack of gum in the back net pocket of my backpack and she came up to me and says is that gum in your back pocket and I said yes and she said give me a piece <laughs> okay <laughs> I was taken aback but that's just the way Africans can be a little sometimes blunt and I gave her a piece but I'm reminded of that when I see John's boldness in verse 9 he went up to the mighty angel and said give me the book and the, and, 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 and the angel does so, we're going to end there today. Um, when we obey the Lord in His Word, we can do it with a spirit of boldness, just like John. We can do that, have that boldness before men. We can have that boldness before mighty principalities and even before the Lord. And so, I'll talk about that when we resume sometime later this summer. We're going to actually go from this into... Um, what the angel says here and what happens to John when he eats the book, what happens when he tastes it, what happens when it goes into his belly. And then verse 11 of chapter 10 is very important. It's very important because it directly relates to us and our responsibility in these last days. And then we're going to look at the tribulation temple in Revelation chapter 11. Something that's not in existence today. Okay? But it will be when the times of these things come. And there's some interesting insight I can share with you from my recent trip to Israel and visiting the Temple Institute that I believe will shed light on these Scriptures. Does anybody have any questions? Again, I'm sorry I hoped to move through chapter 10 today, but I, I think it was worth visiting some of these Scriptures to remind us of what God's telling us not to do and what He's telling us to do and to look at it um, in context of John's simple obedience.